Tommy Kelly, followed by Victor Moshe. Tommy Kelly, good afternoon. Um, so, Mitch, since you don't have any idea what's going on in your district, let me tell you, because I've been doing work talking about house people on the ground in the park who are three minutes away from your council office in Echo Park that are being displaced. I like to call it the Park Rangers Displacement Project because they are trying to displace 60 people from this park and then when we show up to, to stand up for the rights like you should be doing of these unhoused people, they call it off and they lie. And they, they say they never was this week, even though I have a recording of them putting up sweet posts. <laughs> LAPD lies. Uh, the latest excuse is that Nike's going to record a film a half mile away, so therefore they have to displace some people in the park. It's all just a fucking excuse to, to, to push people out so that you can have lower numbers on your count. Why don't you do something and stand up for the people? You were there, bitch. Yes. You were there, you coward. Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about a very uh, not covered topic relating to the cops, uh, as is usual because of who the victim was. Uh, a very scary update to what's going on relative to uh, the dismantling of the outreach program and replacement with, uh, well, basically just stepping back to the punitive enforcement mechanism of dealing with our unhoused neighbors. Uh, going into some depth about the situation in uh, Oakland that was unfolding as we were recording last week uh, with the Moms for Housing group. Uh, going to go giving, giving a bit of a deep dive there from Bushido. Uh, then I'm going to be going into some of the details on SB50 because this is going to be a huge issue moving forward and there's a lot of details here that we just haven't really had the time uh, to cover in the past, so we're going to dive right into it. Um, but first, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. Well, it's been a pretty, you know, lazy-ish week. Uh, I did want to flag the fact that we've got the point-in-time count coming up here pretty soon. So if you still want yes, to volunteer for that, there are still plenty of places that you can go do that. We'll give you the information for that at the end. Um, but it's really useful. And especially, like, as we're going to be going into this episode, you know, this isn't going to be so much as, like, covering a bunch of news stories a little bit too deeply, but us covering just a couple of news stories a little bit too deeply with the framing being that the housing crisis and the crisis that we're seeing on our streets are in inextricably linked and the people in power are ultimately failing and that has deadly consequences and this is being examined and kind of played out a number of ways that we're going to go through so I just kind of want to put that in your mind that like when we talk about the intersectionality of issues and we're talking about housing and homelessness and policing and racism, these things are all part and parcel of the same terrible system that's moving forward. And we can't just solve one of them. That's an impossibility. We have to take on this entire system. Like, we need systems change. Just one or two policies is not going to fix us. Just continuing to allow the market to dictate how our cities are built and how our lives are led is not going to fix this. What we really need is total and radical systems change, and we're really not seeing that. So how about you, Chris? How's your week been? Uh, it's been pretty good. Uh, we had a little bit of fun at City Hall on, uh, what was that? That was Wednesday, uh, going to the uh, Homelessness and Poverty Committee hearing and uh, basically shouting at Mitch for 
his complete inability to uh, participate or be productive as a you know community leader um, relative to the sweeps that were happening in Echo Park uh, over the weekend. So uh, yeah, that was that was brutal. Yeah, so it was a it was a brutal sweep, and it actually seemed to have been more or less uh, stopped because uh, folks turned out in force to keep it from happening. Uh, apparently Mitch happened to have been driving around in the area or somehow got word of it and then showed up to assess the situation or something, uh, because apparently he just wanders his district frequently, which, you know, cool for you in to it, be I mean, uh, it, driving around in your district. At least he drives a minivan, it, I guess. Uh, no, that was more like a, uh, more like a, a big Prius or something. It was not a, it was not a full size minivan. It was, it was some kind of a boxy, uh, car that looked like it was at least moderately, uh, fuel efficient. Um, but the idea that, you know, if you're going to be like in your district and being a part of your district, walking your streets is a much more effective mechanism for actually engaging with the community rather than being in your car. Because when you're in your car, you are, uh, extremely, uh, disconnected from your local community, unless you know, unless you're driving around like a convertible, uh, and even then, you're still going to be disconnected in other ways. Um, but being in that you know box of metal and glass that is literally serving as a barrier between you and everything around you uh, does not mean that you are you know embedding yourself and and being active and participating in outreach in the community just driving around the streets to see what's going on but anyway uh there was a, a nasty sweep scheduled also when you're trying to pass the buck and say that a production company is responsible oh, for yeah. what's happening and that production company writes a public letter saying actually we reserve the tennis courts that are like half a mile away and we yeah. don't care about the encampment we're not trying to displace these people it kind of makes it really hard or when you have your field deputies debating with people who are calling into your office to complain about what you're doing and saying, well, what's your definition of a sweep? As though defining what a sweep is and is not is going to change anything about that situation. Yeah, it's just all kinds of screwed up. So basically, uh, there was originally going to be a sweep that was scheduled to happen in Echo Park where everyone was going to be displaced and then said that they were not allowed to come back into the park for a full week after the sweep. Uh, the excuse given was for the production of a Nike uh, commercial of some sort. Um, and it, there's just a bunch of mess going on. There was a bunch of messes going on around this. A lot of contradictory information. Park rangers claiming that they were not involved in posting the notices while there was video of those same park rangers posting the notices. Uh, people saying that they weren't aware of the sweep in other ways or that LAPD wasn't going to be. It, it's just... Uh, the the city, I believe, just kind of got caught with their pants down on this one yep. because activists showed up and interfered and, you know, protected the rights of these unhoused folks who have literally nowhere else to go and made the city look pretty dumb. Um, city council members and LAPD and uh, sanitation workers specifically, as well as the park rangers, who I don't understand what their deal is here other than you know, it's it, there. There are rules about where when you're allowed to put a tent up in a park, which is like never. Uh, you're not allowed to be in the parks after uh, 10 p.m. in a lot of circumstances, which is all kinds of messed up because those are some of the only places that have access that, that have like permanently installed bathrooms that could be made available 24 hours, but you know aren't because of logistical reasons. Uh, these these rules are 
I, I get where they're coming from. I totally understand that. But given the circumstances of the crisis we are in, uh, we really need to be revisiting how all of that works because we're we're dealing with a humanitarian crisis. We have yep. uh, had UN rapporteurs on uh, human rights come in and say that the conditions in parts of our city are worse than refugee camps because we have fewer sanitation services than refugee camps. Yep. And it's just despicable that our city has allowed this to happen. Um, but anyway, I, I, it, that was that made for an interesting uh, an interesting Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, there was also a sweep over around the uh, bridge housing facility on Schrader, which is also in Mitchell yes. Farrell CD13. Uh, and then there was actually scheduled for this morning, there was a sweep just up the street from the ground game office on Wilton. Uh, apparently it wasn't as bad. Uh, because one of the things about the Schrader sweep was that the uh, people who lived at that encampment were forced to move almost a mile away while the sweep happened before they could bring their tents back. And we're basically told, if you don't get out of this like arbitrary area that we've designated around the bridge shelter, you could be arrested for trespassing and we could seize all of your stuff. So the police were using really strong arm tactics there. It seems like that's been pulled back a little bit. I think there was enough bad press this week about how these sweeps are conducted, about what's going on there. But that doesn't mean that it was a good week for the people who are suffering on the street. So let's start with no. the most heartbreaking oh, story. And, well, really quick, yeah. before we jump into that, there was actually also a sweep that had literally been happening just like a few blocks from City Hall uh, that uh, ground game member and about face uh, vet against the war, uh, John Motter, had been helping, to, helping unhoused folks move their stuff back and forth because... Uh, this was real close to City Hall. He had just been there and was exhausted, came in and shouted at the committee members because, you know, when people are confronting this kind of a situation of, first of all, it's entirely dehumanizing to say you can only possess what can fit into a 60-gallon trash bag. But beyond that, when the city is like the LAPD or sanitation workers are giving contradictory information about where they're allowed to like temporarily store their stuff while a sweep is taking place and a cleanup is supposed to be taking place of these sections of the sidewalk, the information that's given should really, you know, have to be accurate the first time around because asking everyone to pick up all their stuff and drag it to a safe spot and then later tell them, oh, no, no, that's not a safe spot, that's included in the sweep zone, is something that keeps happening yes. over and over and over again. And it is just... It's just torturous on these people to put them through all of this, and it's physically exhausting. In a lot of circumstances, these are people who are not, you know, in the best physical conditions because they have sustained some kind of a an injury that put them out of work, or they are old and they are, you know, on social security or any of these other circumstances. Like forcing people to have to drag around all of their belongings and then drag them all around again, uh, you know. 15 minutes later because apparently the information given was inaccurate is just inhuman and cruel and it it's uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's so vindictive and spiteful and unnecessary and unhelpful. One of the things that was pointed out to me was, you know, these sweep notices stay, say that they start at 6 a.m. because even under Mitchell and under the the uh, other the other settlement that the city has, uh, yeah. you're only allowed to keep tents up from 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. So the tents need to come down at 6 a.m. and the sweeps say we start at 6 a.m., which means that a lot of these folks are either staying up all night prepping their stuff to move or they're waking up really, really <sighs> early so that they're ready to move by 
by 6 a.m. Except that sanitation yeah. doesn't generally show up until 9 or 10 in the morning. So then you have a bunch of folks yeah. who are sleep-deprived, sitting around for hours with nothing to do. Maybe they wander off to find some breakfast or get some coffee or just, you know, take a walk. They could yeah. miss the window when sanitation shows up and decides, oh, there's nobody attending to this tent and its belongings. We're just going to toss all of it out. And the, yeah. the amount of stories or the number of stories out there of people that have precious family heirlooms, medical documents, uh, medications, vital documents, all of that stuff thrown out by LA sanitation is just too much to count. And it happens in pretty much every sweep. But even when you're not facing the threat of a sweep, your life is still in danger. So let's talk about the shooting that happened in Culver city. Uh, last week we reported on this, uh, because the story broke right as we were recording actually. So let's go through the follow up on this, the shooting of Victor Valencia by LAPD. So Victor Valencia was shot dead by the LAPD on Saturday, January 11th. This happened, as we said, during the recording of our previous episode, and initial reports were that this man's name was John at the time. Uh, We reported that because we were going off of what information was available at the time that we recorded. Uh, He was holding a bicycle part that the officers thought was a gun. Um, None of the coverage of the shooting has actually included that detail, which was disclosed during the LAPD uh, commissioner's meeting that was held this past Tuesday, which that's basically the way that this always works. Whenever there is an officer-involved shooting, uh, you get all the information about what actually went down, at least as far as the cops are willing to tell you, at the LAPD commissioner's meeting where there is a uh, basically a wrap-up of the... I guess it's like an action report is the way that they describe it. Yes. Um, but yeah, so the the articles that exist for this piece basically are all pretty much the same as like what the LA Daily News uh, said, which was, quote, a suspect struck in an officer-involved shooting Saturday on the western side of the Culver City, Los Angeles border was pronounced dead at a hospital, authorities said. Uh, some of them list that there was a... Uh, suspect with a gun, like a, I guess it's a 415 is the, is the radio call for that. Um, but none of them reported on the fact that what the man's name was, Victor Valencia. None of them mention the fact that the gun was not actually a gun, that it was a bicycle part. And uh, initial reports, I believe, had said that there was like a weapon found at the scene, but that, that, that was not accurate. So things have been updated since then. But we're looking at entire articles on this topic uh, that amount to, what, 139 words, uh, almost directly pulled from the LAPD blotter for the LA Daily News. Uh, NBC's article was 125 words, CBS 122, Patch.com article on it was 103, and Fox News was 147. None of these listed his name or that he was unarmed. Uh, and I think, I think it's, one it's, of the articles, I think it was the NBC one briefly mentioned that no gun has been found as though a gun could wow. be found in the future. Um, but didn't yeah. directly say like <laughs> this man was unarmed. They're just like, well, we haven't found the gun yet. So we might find that proof later. Yeah. And there was like, I remember reading as the story was breaking, I remember reading the Twitter timeline and someone reported seeing this man with a gun trying to carjack someone. And that's when LAPD showed up and confronted him. And it's like, obviously that person on the Twitter timeline was just fucking lying, but people feel okay to do that in these situations because they don't feel like the person who's been killed by the cops was a human being to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 deeply disturbing, and you know we've we've mentioned this, uh, and other activists mention this all the time. LA averages three homeless deaths per day on the streets of LA. 
and the w- the ways that they die are are myriad. Most of them are related to exposure or health conditions. Um, but there's they are some of the most prominent victims of murder in the city. There's yep. a, a massive preponderance of murder within the unhoused community. Uh, and then they also are oftentimes victims of state violence like this. This man was most likely suffering from some kind of a mental health crisis that required uh, a soft touch approach. Um, we've seen this happening all around the country that people who are in mental health crisis Instead of having any kind of a care worker or uh, a, a mental health team uh, come out and provide any kind of a meaningful, uh, you know, care-based approach to de-escalating situations or anything else, uh, cops roll up, lights are blaring, sirens on, uh, guns drawn, and shots are fired. And when shots are fired at an unhoused, unarmed man, uh, he's going to die. And this happens almost every time that the shots are fired. Sometimes they do manage to survive, but uh, in the case of uh, the, the the man who had been shot, who was camping on a driveway in Venice last year, you know, he's facing uh, four felony counts uh, of resisting arrest because he was suffering a mental health crisis and the cops decided to unload on him uh, because he was brandishing a, a two-by-four. Like, this is... The the way the entire approach needs to be rethought, and LAPD should be ashamed of themselves for the way that they do this. And these cops who resort to you know pulling that trigger this quickly uh, should, at the very least, face some kind of uh, you know a, a punishment within the system. Uh, they should definitely not have guns anymore. Um, probably be demoted and put on desk duty or, you know, actually tried like anyone else who fires a gun at an unarmed man would be tried in this city and prosecuted for being the killers that they are. Like we, but any of those steps would be more than what is actually going to happen right now. It's going to be like a note in the cop's record and that's it. Yep. And it's just going to be accepted as like, this is the routine matter of course, you know, day-to-day operations of the LAPD is you get a call about a man with a gun and even if he doesn't have a gun and you shoot him and he dies, nothing happens to the officer that pulls that trigger. Well, and reports a- reports after the fact and including the LAPD, like after action report, said that he was holding a bicycle part and that the police officer didn't know if it was a gun or not and so shot him. And it's like, if you're a police officer and you can't identify a cell phone or a bicycle part as not a gun, you probably shouldn't be carrying a gun yourself. Like, that means 100%. you're just putting unarmed people in danger all of the time. And we've seen this happen repeatedly. And we also know that it's got a racialized component to it. We know that oh, when absolutely. LAPD is confronting black and brown suspects, they're much more likely to pull the trigger when that person is unarmed. And if you are a young black male in this country, and this is just a national trend, being shot by the police is actually a leading cause of death now. And it doesn't matter even if you're uh, a legal gun owner like Philandro Castile and you have all of the necessary paperwork to carry that weapon with you, you could still be shot by a police officer even when you're following the law. It just sort of leaves people in... It puts people up against a corner and it puts people in a very vulnerable and dangerous situation and one that's probably only going to get worse. So as we move on to the next subject, we have a new city council president officially now. Nuri Martinez has been sworn sworn in as the president of LA City Council. Um, One thing she immediately started doing when she took that post was talking about revamping LASA and revamping the way that we deal with our unhoused population. So let's talk about this a bit because... 
this article from Curbed that really covers the the changes that Lasse has seen uh, is really heartbreaking and really makes you wonder where our politicians are putting their energy and their momentum. And it doesn't seem like they're putting it behind compassion and empathy or behind providing services, not sweeps. Yeah, so the services, not sweeps, hashtag and uh, coalition has been a thing now for a while. Um, basically, a number of groups came together and were saying, hey, look, if we're going to actually be trying to meaningfully and compassionately tackle the crisis of of homelessness within the city of Los Angeles, we need to be putting services forward first, not treating people as trash that's to be swept from one street to the next. Uh, and so one of the key demands in that was, you know, refocusing how these uh, the, these you know sanitation sweeps were structured and putting more of an emphasis on outreach through LASA. And the, uh, the city's initial rollout of that was this uh, thing that came out of the mayor's office called Care and Care Plus. And so when the rollout was, was, was originally revamped and, and done last year, uh, Garcetti was quoted as saying, Care is about something bigger. It's about the humanity we will give back. Uh, which was was heartening to hear, and uh, just like everything else, he says, basically empty words. Uh, CARE was officially launched on October 1st, and then the mayor announced it on Twitter, saying, quote, Our new CARE teams launched across L.A. today, leading with services and serving with compassion. Equipped with outreach training and sanitation resources, these teams connect homeless Angelinos to services to and help ensure our neighborhoods are clean and healthy, end quote. Of course, this model only lasted for four weeks before the L.A. City Council started pulling out their knives to gut it. In the face of stark news coverage of the crisis and the resignation of Peter Lin, who was the former head of LASA uh, leading up to the end of the year. So uh, Emily Alpert Reyes has done some really good reporting on this. Uh, she actually did a sit down with Nuri Martinez to um, basically go through what her you know, her her entry into this role as the president of city council uh, was what it meant for her, what, what it meant for the city. And she uh, Emily opens up the article with this with the following paragraph, quote, Nuri Martinez outlined a family's first agenda Tuesday as the new president of the Los Angeles City Council, vowing to reassess how homeless services are provided to needy residents, help struggling families and foster youth and clean up the city streets sullied with trash and encampments, end quote. Uh, Neri is actually quoted in the LA Times herself saying, quote, I am a child of the working poor, and this is why I champion issues of the working poor, end quote. Uh, Bushido, how do you how do you uh, how do you take that? Well, so it's weird because like the people who are living on the streets of LA are the working poor. Like a lot of right. people who are living in tents or living in their cars have a job. They just can't afford a place to live. But apparently because yeah. they don't have a permanent roof over their head, they don't count. Or the fact that they're employed doesn't count. Or they're somehow this like weird, strange other. Like I still feel like we have this sense among uh, the anti-homeless groups and even the people that are in political power that homeless people don't have a history. Like they didn't, you know come from a place, they didn't have a community, they don't have a family, they just sort of like appeared yeah. one day on the street and are now a problem that needs to be dealt with rather than like being fully human beings who have a story and have a history and have like a valid reason for being there. And it's it's this sort of weird hair splitting where when Nuri Martinez is talking about the working members of her community, like you're not seeing 
this same kind of, of homelessness up in like Sunland and Tahunga and the places that Nuri represents, but you're seeing a lot of the people from that community displaced to places like Skid Row and pushed out into their cars around Sunland and yeah. around Pacoima and around those other places. And let's not forget, like, Pacoima has one of the largest public housing developments in all of Southern California. That's right in the heart of Nuri's district. And the people that are in that housing complex are are much closer to becoming unhoused than you would imagine, especially with the moves that like HUD is yeah, making. And you have to wonder, you know, if yeah. if HUD did pull the trigger and kicked all of their undocumented residents out of public housing, yeah. would Nuri fight for them? It's hard to tell. I mean, she does. She is truthful in saying that she is the child of the working poor. Her, she's the daughter of a dishwasher and a factory worker who emigrated from the uh, Mexican state of Zacatecas. Anyway, uh, the reality, though, is that for being a child of the working poor, she really has seemed to have forgotten what it means to be the working poor, um, or at least has lost sight of what it means to be the child of the working poor in Los Angeles in 2020. Because back when she was growing up, you could be poor and still afford to actually have a roof over your head because the housing in Los Angeles in the 70s, in the 80s, was a significantly safer area for, you know, the, in terms of the, the, the stability of your lifestyle if you were a worker in a factory, if you were a dishwasher, you could actually afford to live and have a home with a roof over your head in like, you know, a two bedroom uh, house up in the valley or in any of these areas, you know, like in, in Boyle Heights and Highland Park, uh, in uh, Echo Park, Silver Lake areas and South LA, like you could afford to be the working poor and still actually have a roof over your head in Los Angeles. But that is quickly disappearing because the cost of housing in this city has just been skyrocketing, as we've discussed so many times on this podcast, and you, you know, it's it's flooding the airwaves everywhere. Like housing is is fucked in California, and particularly fucked in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And she just seems to have completely lost touch with what that actually means for working poor families. And as you were just saying, like they the city council does seem to take like an abiogenesis uh theory to homelessness which you know that's that was the theory that aristotle used to believe uh and everybody of his time that <laughs> fucking like, digging into the archives the on that one sorry about that but yeah uh, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's from it's the good. mind i spent a lot of time and money studying philosophy and honestly that was a throwback <laughs> so congrats there you go uh so yeah they, they 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 seem to be taking like this abiogenesis of you know it came from nothing and it's it's also one of those like we're we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. It's like the only thing that they know how to do is use punitive approaches to like smashing this with a hammer instead of actually trying to reach out with a helping hand and help people get into the kind of care and services that they need in order to survive. So uh, there's this article that you mentioned briefly uh, from uh, Jenna Chandler, uh, who she wrote this article over at Curbed, and it's going into the what has changed, right, in terms of how these uh, care teams were supposed to be rolled out and, like, what is actually going on now. And uh, Nuri is quoted in Chandler's article saying, quote, how can we have deployed this program thinking things were going to improve? 
I appreciate Lhasa coming into Cruz and developing their relationship, but we can't leave it up to them to decide whether something is trash or isn't. End quote. And it's um, weird that she takes issue with Lhasa developing <laughs> relationships with people yeah. who are unhoused because, like, Nuri's whole thing is That's I develop relationships with small business owners. Like, if you have money uh, and property, you are worth cultivating a relationship with. If you don't, then you can get fucked. Yeah. And it's like literally the only way that you can actually provide meaningful services to people. Uh, and, and actually get people to take you up on the offer is to have formed a genuine relationship with them through these outreach workers because that's how social services work. Like the, the you cannot just say send out an LAPD sergeant and say, hey, we have the, these bunks available at this uh, at this shelter downtown. Uh, you should take them up. It'll be better than this. It's like that's that doesn't work. If you if you are talking to people who have been victimized by the police and sanitation workers over and over and over again, you cannot then say that we're going to be able to get them to take services uh, at face value when they're offered to them by anyone who hasn't already developed like this this kind of an in-depth relationship that's necessary. Like you need to be having these outreach workers from Lhasa or other agencies out there talking to people and developing that intrapersonal relationship and that trust in order to actually get them to take you up on these offers because frankly in a lot of circumstances people have been in shelters before and have had really bad experiences it is a traumatizing experience for so many people because the shelters just don't work for a lot of different people because of the types of you know what their background is what their identity is there are internal you know politics within the shelter there are cliques there is you know there are, there are, are dangerous elements that are have to be addressed and you know in a lot of circumstances living in a in a shelter without any kind of personal uh privacy or separation from other people like it is more dangerous for some people to be in these shelters than it is to be on the street in a tent. And also if you've got a pet, like the shelters just don't work. They do not let yeah. you bring your pet. They also like limit how much of your belongings you're even allowed to bring in, if any. And you're forced to like leave them out on the curbside while you're in the shelter, which then of course they get taken or get picked through and all of the good stuff gets taken, leaving you with nothing. Like it's and not the the idea <sighs> and, and to not yeah. even mention the restrictions on your movement, your ability to come and go when you want, oh, absolutely. the ability to decide when you want to go to sleep, when you want to eat, any of that stuff. You're, you know, when you go into a shelter, in a lot of these shelters, you're pretty much giving up your right to freedom to decide how you want to live your life, prisoner. when you would like to do yeah. certain things. That schedule is set for you. And for things like the Union Rescue Mission, you know, you have to leave in the morning and then you have to come back at night, which basically leaves you standing in a line on the sidewalk for the entire day, oftentimes just in the sun without shelter, because if you leave that line, you're not getting your space that night. And if you have kids, some of these shelters won't take you because they know that it's a danger to have those kids and there are other parents who don't want to take their kids into those shelters and we have very few shelters that can accommodate pregnant or women with children and it, it's really kind of mind-boggling that that's not being further addressed and that's not something that's part of the discussion that our shelters are below the lowest ring of what we are below the lowest rung of what we should be offering someone in terms of a habitable place to live. Absolutely. Paul Koretz is also quoted in the Curbed article saying, I don't know that we're as concerned about the outreach element. Of course we want it, but if our primary mission is to create a strong sanitation program, it has to take somewhat of a backseat, end quote. 
Uh, he also told Curb that staffers in his office had asked to actually get rid of care, uh, which says volumes. Uh, Mitchell Farrell is also quoted in here because, of course, Mitchell Farrell is also quoted in this article saying, quote, we have a mission to keep our neighborhoods clean, safe and get people into housing. I am not sure that Lhasa has the same mission. It is very unclear to me. We work with Lhasa. We work quite well with them. But if the decision making is starting to be taken away from the electeds and being made by folks who are not accountable to anyone, including us, and yet our constituents are the ones who are suffering, that's a real problem, end quote. Um Mitch, uh, Lhasa is accountable to the elected officials of the city and the county. Y'all run it. That's literally your job. And y'all fund it to the tune of $35 million a year while you give LAPD a billion dollars a year. Exactly. I wonder why Lhasa can't Uh, compete. It's, I mean, it's the level of tone deafness coming out of Mitch O'Farrell's office on this and Mitch himself is absurd it's just unbelievable jaw-dropping disconnected nature of this man and the way that he lives and literally just does not seem to have any kind of a spot in his heart for the unhoused constituents in his district and just doesn't seem to think that they're actually residents uh they live in your district mitch they're your fucking residents get over it (sighs) anyway um quoting from curbed here real quick Quote, the makeup of the teams hasn't changed, but outreach workers, all of whom work for Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, or LASA, have less influence now over what homeless residents living on the streets can keep with them, according to a social service provider's uh, sorry, according to social service providers speaking on the condition of anonymity. Crews were retrained in late November and were told to toss out everything that does not comply with the city's size limits for items stored on sidewalks and streets, end quote. Um, yeah, so the... Changes were trying to be implemented, um, and then the changes were rolled back immediately to some degree. Like The fact of the matter is that under Martin v. Boise and all of the other, like the, the Mitchell settlement and everything else, like you're not supposed to be scrapping things from people that are um, necessary aspects of, of living, like you know tents and uh, bicycles or wheelchairs or other bulky items that do not fit into that 60 gallon bag. Um, but the, the, the city is like, is, is basically reneging on that. And it, I don't know what their plan is for moving forward. Um, Jane Wynn uh, from K-Town for All is also quoted in this article saying, quote, it seems like they're trying to expand the enforcement of these sweeps and they're making it more difficult for people to come back, um, end quote. And y- y- yes, that is exactly what is happening. Uh, this is the city just playing a punitive game of whack-a-mole, moving people around like some awful game of dystopic uh, hot potato and saying, not my problem, your problem. And the fact that this is all happening and really ramping up so heavily in the couple of weeks leading up to the homelessness uh, point in time count uh, that Lhasa is going to be doing here on the 21st, 22nd uh, ish and other times that we're going to be more specific about it in the outro. Uh, it's, it's absolutely absurd that this is like, this is what the city is choosing to do at this point in time when it is most important from a, you know, even just from a statistical perspective to know what the hell's going on. Like, like just trying to mush this issue around and and shove it between districts is totally antithetical to actually trying to solve the problem and we've seen it before and we're seeing a ramp up of it now and it's 
truly disheartening and just disgusting. And unfortunately, we knew this was coming when they opened the bridge shelter housing. Part of the deal for them opening that that uh, the bridge shelters was that they were going to increase enforcement around those shelters. Like, if we open yes. a shelter in your area, you either have to take shelter there or you have to move far away. Even when they knew yeah. in a place like Koreatown, they'd be opening a shelter with like 60 to 90 beds, but there are 400 people like living 400, on the street. Yeah. That means three quarters of the people there, at a minimum, have no place to go. Like, they don't have a shelter bed op- option for them, and yet at the same time they're being told you can't stay here. It leaves you with literally yeah. nothing to do outside of radical action. So we're going to move on to uh, covering the Moms for Housing. Which is one hell of a radical action. Yeah, so uh, the Moms for Housing, in case you weren't following it, was something that's went down in Oakland for the last couple of months. Uh, I'm going to go through the timeline real quick, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth at the end uh, about the actual owners of the property, a company named Wedgwood. Uh, I always love those landlords, right? Yeah, just to flag something that I found kind of funny is like, I was doing research for this over the last couple of days and trying to figure out like who Wedgwood is, where are they getting their money, because it's this huge mess of like LLCs and stuff. And I crack open the internet today, and there's an NBC Bay Area article and an Intercept article, both basically having done all my <laughs> research for me, which I already went and did. So efficiency, Got folks. Like, Intercept gets involved. Yeah, exactly. But, but this is going to be a hot issue, and we're going to talk about this more and more and more. But I really want to frame what happened with Moms for Housing as kind of the tip of the spear of fighting this structural and systemic inequity. That when you have perfectly usable empty housing stock that is being weaponized for profit, people are being left out in the cold, people's lives are being threatened, people are literally facing the violence of the state just to get a roof over their head. So let's go through the timeline real quick on this. So on November 18th, about a week before Thanksgiving, three Oakland families moved into a vacant house at 2928 Magnolia Street. Now, it's been reported that there were actually four families, but from what I can tell, there's three mothers that were mainly listed. It was Dominique Walker, Misty Cross, and Talani King and their children. They took over the property and went about fixing it up to make it livable, like they installed a hot water heater, they painted the walls, they moved in furniture. They also kept paying the utility bills, something that apparently the property owner had not been doing before that. Now, 2928 Magnolia Street is not unique in the neighborhood. Like, down that very same block, there are houses that have been recently flipped. They now have for sale signs. They've got the horizontal fences of gentrification going on. Like, all of the signs of gentrification and wealth moving in are happening on this block in West Oakland. These once-affordable single-family homes are being turned into wealth transfer vehicles for families as the former owners are pushed out of the neighborhoods by lost jobs, skyrocketing costs, and radicalized forces of gentrification. For nearly three weeks, the moms and supporters waited for the inevitable eviction notice. They knew that this was going to come because pretty much as soon as they took over the house, uh, they they were uh, taken to court by the owner of the property listed as Catamount Properties 2018 LLC. Don't worry, we'll unpack that name a little bit later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So one of the first things that the moms proposed was that Wedgwood, the property owner, like the bigger property owner here, and remember, this is going to be a mess of LLCs, but Wedgwood owns Catamount, and Wedgwood and Catamount were given the offer to allow the Oakland Community Land Trust to buy the property for the moms. Wedgwood rejected that offer and said instead what they would do is they would pay for two months of the moms to live in a Catholic-run shelter, and they would pay for their moving costs. Obviously, two months in a shelter is not the same as having a 
permanent roof over your head. It's not the same as having a place to call home. No. And it's not a place that's comfortable for a family to stay or for children to grow up. And here's one of the Absolutely. moms discussing that offer with local media. As well as moving costs, what's your response to that? Do the moms consider this? Well, how do they feel about this offer? We want people to understand that Catholic Charities is not housing. What this offer, and we say offer, was, was two months in a shelter and to pay for moving expenses. And I think people can see just by the number of um, individuals who've come to court dates, who showed up to defend the house, and to really stand with the mothers, moving is not an issue. Um, access to people to pack, to donate trucks, and everything needed to move is not an issue. Uh, the system does not work. So anyone who's tried to get housing in the city of Oakland knows that two months is nothing. One of the mothers has been homeless for six years. So add two months to six years, and that is not enough time to find affordable housing in the city of Oakland, where the average one-bedroom apartment is $2,500 a month. The, the housing wage in Oakland is $40.88 per hour. That means there is no housing available to working people in this city. So to offer them this gesture is the work of a public relations firm. It is not intended to truly house the, the families. If they were truly interested in housing the families, they would sell this home for what they purchased it for. They have hired a multi-million dollar firm to spin it and get people, including the media, to think other than what is actually happening. It is very simple. They can get all of their money back if they sell the home to the land trust. And if it's in a trust, it remains permanently affordable in perpetuity forever. And that is the model that the mothers are pushing. Sell homes to the land trust so it will be accessible for working people forever. And that is not, an, that is not in the interest of a multi-million dollar corporation that's in the business of making profit off what should not be a commodity. So that's what we're here for today. Now, Wedgwood at some point claimed that they would be open to selling the home, but only if the moms moved out first, which kind of like removes their leverage. Like if you're occupying the property, the only leverage you have is I'm here now, you can't get me out. Asking them to leave the property allows Wedgwood to put up physical barriers to their re-entry, to exercise more power in the situation, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. During the first week of December, I, I want to say around December 6th, Wedgwood Properties finally took action and got a court order court order for the eviction. Uh, this was posted on the door of the house around December 6th, I want to say again. May have been December 7th. But basically, the community immediately uh, kicked into action. Uh, I'm going to play a quote here from Kat Brooks, who is the executive director of Justice Teams Network, which is a grassroots organization providing assistance for communities across California. She's talking about the implicit and the explicit threats that come with the eviction notice. And an eviction notice comes with the threat of arrest. Yes which is them saying that what these mothers have done is criminal. Yeah. That what their, their action of putting a roof over their heads and their child's heads is criminal. Nah, oh, man. There you go. Come on now. That's not what's criminal. Oh, come on now. I'm going to break down what's criminal. What's criminal is one-bedroom apartments for $5,000 a month. What's criminal is the fact that with the exception of council member Nikki Bass, nobody else sitting on city council has demonstrated support for these mothers, including the D.C. council member. What's criminal 
phenomenal is that we have a mayor that put out a tweet two days ago that said some report from somebody, I couldn't even read it because I got nauseous. But it was about the progress that our city is making and that there's signs of this progress that we're making to deal with the housing and unhoused crisis. I was like, no. We are not making process, no. progress, and the signs are the six to 9,000 people that are sleeping on Oakland streets right. every single That's night. Right. Those are the signs of what's happening in this city. If we had an a, a ethical government, a humane government, a rational government, right. why don't they call Wedgwood? Is it Wedgwood? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Why don't they call Wedgwood and say, let's make a deal? Let us help support to keep these four black mothers in this house. That's the job of an elected official. Now, the moms decided to fight this, and one of the keys to them having a successful action was that they had a lot of media support and they had a lot of legal support. They were able to go in front of an Alameda County Superior Court judge and argue their case. On December 16th, 
they were granted a continuance for the hearing, which pushed back the possible eviction by about 15 days. So we're talking December 16th. That means that a possible eviction was getting pushed back to the new year, possibly after that. And that's also, remember, that's just the next date for the hearing. So once the hearing happens, it'll still, it would still take a few days before the eviction could actually be affected. So as the fight and between... And just to the, jump in really quick yes. here, the, this, this highlights the absolutely critical need for like a tenant's right to counsel and these other measures that you know they were able to successfully pass in San Francisco and that there's been discussion around doing here in Los Angeles but we we it's just chronically underfunded anytime that any of these little uh you know test cases are put out there but tenants are at such a massive legal disadvantage when it comes to dealing with an eviction or fighting a landlord uh, to try to keep their roof over their head, uh, or, or to, you know, dealing with unjust fees and 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 skyrocketing rents, like the tenants are always in such a disproportionate position in terms of the the power dynamic, and creating an actual tenant's right to counsel and trying to get you know pro bono attorneys to come in and help these folks is absolutely critical because we're talking like a, a well, actually, literal we'll, like David and Goliath situation here. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end because as you've correctly flagged, Wedgwood yeah. actually has a history of illegal evictions connected oh, with hey. their buying of these properties. But we'll get to that at the end That's because it's a, a huge just corporate clusterfuck when we actually begin digging into Ugh. it. So after the, the court victory on the 16th, getting the continuation, uh, a bunch of supporters showed up at the house. I want to play some of the celebratory chants that were going on when they found out that the eviction was not happening, happening immediately. Now we'll flash forward to January 10th. In the intervening time, there was a lot of media buzz around this. A lot of people showed up night yeah. after night to participate in solidarity actions, to meet the moms, to talk about what was happening, just sort of like to go see this action in progress. But finally, on January 10th, an Alameda Superior Court judge ruled against the moms, giving the county clearance to conduct an eviction. Uh, I've read this quote before from the order, but I'm going to read it again. In the order, the judge says, quote, the court considered and denied Miss Dominic Walker's request to proffer testimony through expert witnesses concerning federal and international authorities regarding the right to housing. The court recognizes the importance of these issues, but as raised in connection with Ms. Walker's claim of right to possession, finds that they are out of the scope of this proceeding. So basically what the judge is saying is like, you have a good point that housing could be considered a human right, and that's a discussion we should have, but that's not what I'm here to rule on. I'm here simply to rule on whether or not Wedgwood and Catamount own this property or whether you and the moms own the property. And because of the way that the laws are written, I find that the corporations own the property even though you need it and they don't need their profit. And that kind of sets the tone for how we're getting into this mess, and especially as we talk towards the end about what happened in 2008 and 2009 and how the foreclosure and eviction crisis really got to a boiling point during that time. Now, the order says that the enforcement of the eviction must be carried out within five days. So on the evening of January 13th, the first day that the eviction would probably happen, supporters gathered at the house to block the eviction and demonstrate solidarity with the families suffering in this absolutely broken economy. This is Sarah O'Neill, a neighbor of the moms, speaking about why she showed up. I'm here today because I was born and raised in the Bay Area, and this is an issue that's really dear to my heart. Um, I was moved to action by the moms themselves. When they spoke, they just 
were saying things that really, really resonated with me, which is that there, this issue and this idea that housing is a scarcity and there aren't enough places for people to live in the Bay Area is simply a myth and that people are suffering senselessly and they're raising an issue that all of us should be paying attention to. Housing should be a human right. It should not be a commodity. It should not be something that people are able to profit oh God, off of. We should not see people profiting off the suffering of other people. Um, and so that's why I'm here today. That's why we're all engaging in peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience today. And we're going to stand as long as we need to in support of these mothers because their bravery and their courage is something that all of us should be looking towards. Sara's comments touch on many of the issues that we're experiencing nationally. We know that the San Francisco area has nearly five times as many empty units as unhoused people. We know that Oakland has four times as many empty units as it does unhoused people. There isn't a scarcity in housing. In fact, there is an abundance, but that abundance is being artificially restricted by the profit-seeking behavior of landlords. Now, the Alameda County Sheriff's Office did give a statement before the eviction saying that they would like to try and de-escalate the situation, that they don't want to see this become a really heated affair. This was not true. Early on the morning of January 14th, the sheriff's office arrived with SWAT officers and a Bearcat. And a Bearcat is a sort of armored personnel carrier. It sort of looks like a tank, but it's on wheels. So it can like drive on surface streets and stuff, but it's still like a heavily armored vehicle. Like this is the sort of thing. For an eviction. Yeah, that you would imagine that you would see in combat. And they brought this out for the eviction of four mothers who were all unarmed and their children. None of the supporters that were there were armed. Nobody was armed except for the police, who again brought tactical gear and fully automatic weapons. They ended up busting down the door with a battering ram, using a robot to go through the house to look for, quote, threats, because, like, the moms may have booby-trapped the house where their kids live. Like, I think, you know, before I move on, I want to, like, point to this as, you know, Example A of how paranoid the police mind is that they think that mothers would booby trap the house where their children are living. And that that shows just how twisted and dehumanized the police mind is that they think that they're being rational there and saying, well, we have to be careful about it. It's like you're pointing guns at mothers, dude. You're not the one that has to be careful. I mean, yes, they do. And they need to be careful that they don't pull the fucking trigger because they do that all the time as it is. But this is just such a gross and disproportionate, like overwhelming show of force in a situation that by no means called for it. Yes. Like, and I, I should it, I should reform my statement uh, to say you are not the ones in danger here. So after correct, the cops yes, that's a- after the cops busted down the door and ran a robot through the house, they arrested two of the moms, Misty Cross and Talani King. They were released uh, the next day, uh, and they really uh, they arrested uh, two okay, of the so supporters who were right. present. I didn't get the names Fun. of the supporters. I didn't see them listed in any of the news articles. Um, but my main focus being on the moms, I do want to point out that these moms were arrested in front of their children. Mother Dominique Walker was actually giving an interview to Democracy Now! when the arrest happened. And when she returned to the property, she gave this statement. Just want folks to know, um, well, first of all, thank you for showing up and and showing out for us. We're fighting for for ourselves, for our community, for everyone. And we, this is mom's house. We're going to be back here. Um, So stay, stay on that text thread. We're going to come out here. We're going to have food for everybody. And, um, Stay on that text alert. Thank you. 
Once the eviction was affected, the sheriff's office immediately went about boarding up the house. And you can see the pictures on Twitter, and I'll, I'll obviously share them in the sources section, of police officers and people they hired carrying plywood into the house, boarding up all the windows, boarding up the front door. Wedgwood immediately put up a fence around the property and has stationed security guards there in an effort to deter any more occupations of the house or any more actions at the house. Obviously, this hasn't completely deterred uh, any of the supporters of the Moms for Housing who have shown up there a couple of times to give press conferences and to take photos and to protest the fact that this corporate landlord is keeping perfectly usable housing stock off the market because they want to flip it for a profit. So what are we to make of this? Unfortunately, this fight is over. Like, the fight over 2928 Magnolia Street is over. The corporate landlords won with the backing of the militarized police state and their courts. But as Ms. Walker said, this movement is far from over. The mom set out with a goal of elevating the national conversation around housing and bringing to light the terrible collusion between the state and landlords that is eviscerating our communities and costing lives. So now we're going to get to the really fun part. And I hope you all like cor corporate legal structures because, boy, howdy, do we have some legalese that we oh got to run through oh to boy, unpack oh boy. this. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It is so absolutely mind-bendingly stupid. And so, like, let's flash back to 2008, 2009. When the foreclosure and eviction crisis was happening, the federal government okay. bought up a lot of distressed home loans and was like, hey, we're going to buy these loans and we're going to not evict you. Then what they did was they turned around and they sold the loans, mainly to private companies and to hedge funds. A lot of these hedge funds, banks, and private companies moved very quickly to evict the people who were living in the house who were supposedly having their mortgage secured by the federal government. These houses were pretty much taken off the market. A lot of them left to blight. Some of them were flipped. Some of them were sold to other corporate entities. It was kind of a gigantic shell game that just resulted in a lot of people losing their most valuable asset to Wall Street in a government-backed program. And one of the largest buyers of loans was a company called HMC. Now, HMC doesn't really pop up in this fight, like, by name. But the reason that HMC doesn't pop up in this fight by name is because they merged with Wedgwood. They are the same company. Like, Wedgwood is essentially a network of companies that buy distressed properties and flip them. And it has done a great job of buying up and merging with other companies to create this multi-state house-flipping scheme. So let's kind of, like, go through the details here. Now... If you look at the actual legal filings, the owner of the 2928 Magnolia Street property is a company yeah. called Catamount Properties 2018 LLC. And that's a real sexy name okay. if you ask me. Catamount is, Properties 2000 Yeah, Catamount Properties 2018 <laughs> LLC is owned by Wedgwood. So Wedgwood okay. is the ultimate owner here, but they have lots of corporate yeah. subsidiaries that they use to buy property in different areas um, because it limits their liability. It allows them to sort of silo off certain segments of money from other segments of money and to create different investment vehicles yeah. based on what they're trying to do. Based and on you've actually had personal experience with like this kind of an LLC structure with a landlord, right? Like when you were, when you were living around USC, you had the, the oh yeah, that, I mean sort of. It was a smaller. Well, it was name. it was a smaller. Cor it wasn't really a corporate landlord. It was a family that owned oh. a series of houses around USC. But every time they would get sued by a tenant for not being good landlords, <laughs> they would just fold up the LLC and create a new LLC with a new family member's name as the registered Folks, agent. <laughs> we've got so, an issue with LLCs holding property. Well, and that's the, that's the thing is recent changes to the tax law have made it much easier to. Have have an LLC owning property. And part of like uh. Trump's big coup in his tax deal was to make it so that 
LLCs, especially investment corp, especially real estate investment corporations, are much more tax benefited. So, like my landlord, about three months before the tax deal went through, suddenly became an LLC at the place I was living in Palms. And then when the the actual like Trump tax bill passed, I understood why because you are in a much more beneficial position when you're an LLC pass through corporation than if you are the private owner. And so these LLCs and these private corporations are incentivized to own real estate property. And they've become the largest buyer of property in the United States. And it's kind of insane that in the last 10 years, we have corporate buyers that include people like Sean Hannity just buying up properties basically in an anonymous way, making it impossible to track who actually owns stuff, who's actually your landlord. Is there actually a person at the end of this paper trail, or is it just another shell corporation that leads to another paper trail that leads to another corporation? So Catamount Properties 2018 is technically a foreign corporation in California, and that's a little bit misleading. So being a foreign corporation doesn't mean that it's like international, right? Like it doesn't mean that this company is like based in Panama or something. It means that it's based outside of the state of California. Now, based on the public records that I was able to track down, Catamount Properties 2018 LLC is actually based in Carson City, Nevada, and is managed by one person who's listed as the registered agent. This one person just happens to have a desk at the Wedgwood offices in Redondo Beach, even though the corporation technically resides in Nevada. Now, there's a lot of reasons why you would reside in Nevada instead of California. (laughs) It all, again, comes down to taxes. Like, you know, the states where it's easiest to hide your money from the tax man are basically Delaware, Nevada, and Texas. So if you want an anonymous corporation, you're either setting up in Delaware, where Joe Biden, you know, made his career fighting for your rights to be a corporation, in Nevada, where they have the whole, like, kind of libertarian, don't tread on me, let me form a private corporation to, like, crush the poor's kind of thing, or Texas, where it's freedom for the corporations and barbarism from everyone else and this is just this big (sighs) trend that we've seen getting worse and worse and worse and one of the things that I'm going to talk about a little bit when we get to the uh, land trust section is how the federal government has really flubbed its responsibility to hold these people accountable and also to allow communities to reinvest in themselves but let's turn back to Wedgwood LLC so Wedgwood LLC is a national home flipping business. They own up in Northern California a couple hundred properties. They've owned perhaps as many as a couple thousand. It's hard to tell because they don't hold on to the properties very long. They tend to um, get rid of them very quickly. They also tend to own them under subsidiary. So if you actually look up... uh, Catamount Properties 2018 LLC, you'll see a bunch of associated businesses. Pretty much the entire Western U.S. has a Catamount property operating in it. Uh, They're based in places as far east as Oklahoma and Ohio, uh, places as far north as Washington. Uh, They're in Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. Basically, if you're west of the Mississippi, there is a Catamount Properties shell corporation operating in your neighborhood, buying up what they call distressed houses, and then flipping them for a profit. So if you want to check out Wedgwood's uh, website, go to wedgwood-inc.com. And you'll see this very slick website that has a lot of like very glossy photos. Uh, it turns out if you run a reverse image search on a lot of their stuff that they're using a lot of stock photos here. Uh, but they have this very like <laughs> startup-y looking office. It looks very sleek oh, yeah. and very modern. and looks like sort of it's welcoming if you're like a white person who likes wearing ties. The first quote you'll see on the webpage 
calls uh, Wedgwood, quote, an integrated network of companies concentrated on real estate opportunities. So what that means is that they're a company formed out of buying out and merging other companies. And so they've sort of become this large company of companies that dabbles its fingers in pretty much everything. And when they say real estate opportunities, what they mean is that they pay the lowest dollar for properties that they think are flippable. So that they basically target neighborhoods that are not doing well economically, then they gentrify them for a profit. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. Once the state has neglected its commitment to communities and allowed them to devalue enough, like companies like Wedgwood are able to leverage investment money and corporate legal strategies to acquire properties for the lowest amount. And it, it's in this really frustrating way. And if you've read Capital Cities by Samuel Stein, this is exactly what he's talking about. They then put a little bit of work into them to attract wealthier buyers and pocket a significant profit that can be reinvested into the next targeted neighborhood. Like the money that Wedgwood is going to pull out of Magnolia Street is not going to go back into Magnolia. Street. It's not going to fund jobs programs. Not. It's not going to fund the schools. It's not it? going to fund the roads being fixed. No, it's going to be turned into investments in the next distressed neighborhood they find, the next place where they say, hey, this is a neighborhood that's not doing great. I bet we can turn a buck by making it white. Now, what's really funny is if you go and see their like who we are section, it lists all of the different businesses that they're invested in. And most of them are like property businesses. You know, I mentioned HMC, which is another like national kind of home buying flipper organization. There's also a couple of property management uh, companies in there. There's a couple of companies that specialize in buying multi-unit dwellings. But they also have private air services. They own chartered jet companies. Because like... If you're going to be making your money destroying communities, why not also invest in some of the most environmentally destructive companies also? Like, these are people that are not just buying poor people's houses and kicking them out. They're also making sure that they're poisoning the environment in more impacted areas because that's a good way to make a buck. And Wedgwood's purpose, like outside of their flowery mission statement and corporate jargon, is just to make wealthy people wealthier by targeting poor communities. That is 100% what they're doing. When they say distressed, they mean poor communities that aren't being invested in by the state, where we have abdicated our responsibility as citizens in a democracy to make sure that everyone is taken care of. The house at 2928 is just one of these properties that they've acquired and sat on, waiting for market conditions to be ripe to flip it. And while Wedgwood sells itself as a service that is rebuilding, they're in fact the bulldozer of development and gentrification backed by the courts and the guns of the state. And this has played out to for them to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Right now, just in Northern California, Wedgwood has at least 125 properties in in the Bay Area that they're currently sitting on. Some of those are probably in the process wow. of being flipped. They have 98 active LLCs and 31 Wedgwood entities appear to own property in the Bay Area. They say appear to because it becomes hard to determine who exactly owns this stuff. It also gets really interesting when you look sort of outside of that because it's Wedgwood's name has shown up more than 220 times since 2015 in Solana County deed records and 726 times in Kern County deed records and 926 times in San Bernardino County deed records. This is not just a Northern California issue. This is a Southern California issue. In Texas, for example, there were more than 544 deed records tied to Wedgwood LLCs since 2016. Wow. Twice that number in Broward County, Florida. Now, just up in Alameda County, Wedgwood has been sued three times for illegally evicting people. Two of those lawsuits were filed for undisclosed amounts of money. The third one is still active. In all three of these cases, what happened was that Wedgwood bought out a property that had been foreclosed upon 
but still had a tenant living in it. Now, under just cause eviction protections, you, when you buy a foreclosed property, can't just tell the tenants to GTFO. You have to have them decide to move out. Well, what Wedgwood did, being the like great landlord that they are, was they stopped doing maintenance on the houses and started using high-pressure tactics to try and force out the tenants. If that didn't work, they would then turn over the properties to uh, area eviction attorneys who would then take the tenants to court to get them out. Like, now, wow. like I said, three of these cases have resulted in lawsuits. There may be more. But three of these have actually gone to court as lawsuits. Two of them has been settled. One of them is still active. But we can't imagine the number of cases where like Wedgwood started doing this and people just decided to leave, that it wasn't worth fighting for it, or they didn't have the money, that they couldn't afford to move and fight a massive corporate landlord. It's yeah. absolutely despicable and violent. And as we saw on January 14th, these threats aren't just empty legal threats. Men with guns and APCs will show up to remove you from a house, and then they will send you to jail. Now, the contrast I want to talk about, and Chris, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, is the Oakland Community Land Trust. And now the land trust model is basically a community fund or funds from your um, local city, municipality, maybe even the state, that can be used to buy these same distressed properties, to buy undeveloped lots, to invest in the community, to make them permanently affordable. So OCLT, or the Oakland Community Land Trust, was started in 2009 after about a decade's worth of work by groups like, including ACORN. Like, it takes a while to get the government to invest in this sort of thing. But the organizing for building the OCLT started in 1999. ACORN really helped get the ball rolling in 2009 uh, by having by staging foreclosure reality tours in West Oakland and East Oakland to get the media and elected wow. officials aware of the reality on the ground. At the end of 2009, OCLT acquired its first vacant foreclosed home. In 2011, OCLT sold its first neighborhood stabilization program funded home. Now, the neighborhood stabilization program is funded by the housing and urban development at the federal level, provides funds to local initiatives that buy foreclosed or vacant homes, rehabilitate them, and then sell them back to community members. And there's been a lot of criticism of what the federal government has done in this case. So back during the 2008-2009 crash, when Fannie, when Fannie and Freddie were buying up a lot of distressed loans or a lot of quote-unquote toxic mortgages, the federal government bought them, stopped the evictions, and then turned around and sold them to Wall Street for very cheap. Now, the agreement was supposed to be that the Wall Street firms that bought them were not going to immediately evict the tenants, but they ended up doing that anyways, spiking the number of people who were forced out of their homes and sent from homeowner to renter, or people who were sent from homeowner to homeless. And this was basically a giant giveaway to Wall Street. We know that people like Sean Hannity bought up in the number of 500 homes, at which he currently owns, some of them in incredibly slummy conditions, that he's simply using his investment vehicles. But of course, Sean Hannity's name isn't on those. Like when you send your rent Why check in at the end of the month, you're not sending a rent check to Sean Hannity. You're sending it to a faceless corporation that Sean Hannity happens to either control or be a major investor in. And that's the shield that these people have is, again... You don't have a landlord who is some dude that you can go talk to and be like, hey, I got sick this month. I had to take time off work. I'm going to be a little short for rent. You have a corporate structure that does not care about what's going on with you. They are legally obligated to chase that profit, and they're legally obligated to maximize returns for their investors, which means you as the homeowner or you as the person who is living in the home are actually a liability for them if you're not able to make that payment every month. So, OCL, so far, OCLT has created 21 permanently affordable single-family homes, which means they rent to people who make 80% or less of the medium income in the area. 
They have invested in three multi-use preservation projects, including the Fruitvale development, which is like a really nice mixed-use affordable housing development, which is right by Fruitvale Station, uh, the site of a very tragic shooting a few years ago up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they also have bought up 10 parcels for community food production and jobs training. And that's kind of the difference that we see between something like OCLT and Wedgwood, is that Wedgwood isn't going to build something where you can grow food for your neighborhood. They're not going to build, they're not going to flip a home and make it affordable to a single mother with three kids. What they want is the maximum profit. And that often means bringing along racialized gentrification because of the way that our economy works. Who's ha who gets the high-paying jobs? Who has access to the education that gets you those high-paying jobs? Who's able to qualify for a mortgage? Like, we're only beginning to scratch the surface of how much discrimination still happens in our housing market. And because we do a terrible job of charting those statistics, we can't really even elucidate how much worse it is to try and rent a house or buy a house when you're black or brown. So community land trusts are a pretty good option here to look at in terms of like what is the alternative to speculator-driven investment. But there's also some problems with them. One, they're competing against a, va a basically limitless fund of slush money that is coming from the foreign markets, people who are looking to basically launder their money into real estate. That's how the Trumps made their money. They're basically a massive money laundering operation. It's very easy to hide your money when it's in real property. It's very easy for you to pull out a return when it's on real property. Also, so if you're laundering your money through something like uh, a, a condo ownership or a house ownership and you lose money, you actually get kind of a tax break on that. Whereas if you just like lose your laundered money or just try and like report your laundered money as regular income, you might be going to jail. So companies like Wedgwood, and I'm not alleging some sort of like criminal malfeasance or conspiracy, though there's a good argument to be made that just de facto they are engaged in that sort of thing, but they're sort of the front through which a lot of international money, whether they know it or not, is getting laundered. And I would argue in the yeah. case of the Trump Corporation, they know what's happening there. They just don't care. That's how the family makes the money. So yeah, right I mean, now in they, Alameda... If they willfully ignore the fact that, like, it's... We allow corporations and these these organizations to basically just pretend to be shoving cotton in their ears and then not having any idea where this dirty fucking money is coming from and therefore absolving themselves of all responsibility because they're like, well, we didn't know that it was from there. Like, we didn't how know was, this was... How was I money. supposed to know that Cypriot Bank 1234 was sending me dirty money, Chris? <laughs> I mean, they sound so legit. How, how could I know that Panama LLC 1257 was laundering drug money into Petitaires? I could never have guessed that. They sound like bot names on Twitter. <laughs> they pretty much are. Catamount Properties 2018 LLC? I mean, ah, yep. uh, I mean, corporate lawyers, not yep. really creative. You know, at least no. like the Enron guy was coming up with names like Chuko and like coming up with like fun, weird, <laughs> nerdy names. Like these guys are just like Catamount Properties, look at the calendar, 2018, cool, good. You know, or naming it after whatever your street address is. Like, if you want to see, like, a fun list of, of corporation names, just go see the number of corporations that incorporate in Nevada in a given year and, like, just mind-numbingly dull. But anyways, in Alameda County right now, there are 8,000 people who don't have permanent shelter. Probably more. That 8,000 number is based on last year's point-in-time count. In Los Angeles County, it's 60,000. Allowing speculators to drive our market is going to drive those numbers up. In the last 10 years, rents have gone up by 36%. Real median wages in that same time are up by 4%. 
Somebody who's good at math, help. My economy is literally fucking dying. Yep. That's how it works. This is how capitalism literally functions. Yep. So let's move on now to the next story. You all have listened to me talk for a whole long time. So we're going to listen to Chris talk for a whole long time. Because SB50 is back to save us? Or maybe not. But SB50, and the reason I want to link these two together is that SB50 is kind of one of these iron hand in a velvet glove solution that purports to be saving us from the housing crisis while in fact feeding the very sources that brought the housing crisis into being in the first place. Absolutely. So actually, before we even really dive into this, let's cut to a bit of an audio clip from uh, State Senator Scott Weiner, who was talking about the the unveiling of these new changes to SB 50 that uh, his his meeting or not meeting, but the, the event that they had at the uh, at City Hall. Uh, in Oakland for unveiling these changes uh, was met with some protests. And those protests, uh, those protesters included the Moms for Action. And, uh, no, Moms for Housing. Or Moms for Housing, sorry. Uh, and those protesters in, included Moms for Housing, as well as a number of other community organizations that are out there. And um, rightly feel that this entire proposal from Wiener's office is... Um, largely disingenuous when it comes to purporting to have any kind of a solution that's offered for uh, low-income communities. And, it, it, you know, the, we'll, we'll get into the details about why all that is true. But let's first let's cut to uh, uh, Scott Wiener's uh, extremely cynical uh, approach to how to deal with this. So here you go. What, what, what do you make of the, the opposition yeah. that was at your, yeah. your event? They, they didn't just shout me down. They shouted every speaker down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so a couple of things. First of yeah. all, I, I, so um, I, I'm from San Francisco. Uh, we, we know protesting. We do yeah. it really well. Yeah. We do it uh, often. Uh, and I have been in many of those protests over the years. I have at times been the subject of protests on the Board of Supervisors or in the Senate. Uh, and protesting is part of our democracy. And so I have no problem uh, with the fact that people were protesting uh, our rollout. Um, and in fact, uh, we, we knew about it ahead of time. And so before the press conference started, I went up to the Moms, uh, uh, the moms for Housing um, uh, folks and I uh, introduced myself and I thanked them for being there. And I told them, you know, genuinely that I support them. I support what they're doing. And, I, um, and they asked if we could meet. And I said, absolutely, I would love to meet. Um, so I, I had no problem with protesters. I know that this bill, and not just, it's not just about this bill, right? Because there have been, you know, they have, a, with Mayor Schaff, there's a lot of tension there. And it's just this issue is so important to all of us. And, it, and especially for people who are housing insecure or homeless, it, you know, impacts people in a just uh, sometimes in a really horrific way. Sure. Um, and so um, I had no problem with them uh, protesting. What I did have a problem with is apparently the, um, the, the sound person at Oakland City Hall got food poisoning the night before and was sick, and he's the only person who can set up the sound system. And so we had no sound system. And so, yes, the pro, the, to be clear, there, the protesters were there. Yeah. Our supporters were – we had 10 times as many supporters as uh-huh. protesters. Uh-huh. And we, but, but on the stage, even though the TV – feed could hear us we didn't really have a sound system for the crowd so it 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 you know yes the protesters were very robust and loud and they as a democracy they have every right to do that okay so 
Jumping right into it, the this is uh, SB50. This is the second year that it is, uh, or it's going into its second year of existence, but it is effectively a reincarnation of SB827, which was Scott Wiener's original attempt at statewide upzoning. Um, initially, uh, he basically threw this, this nuclear bomb onto the uh, housing debate, and housing Twitter in, gener- in particular uh, was a furious, uh, desolate landscape of people uh, throwing all sorts of insults and uh, accusations at one another surrounding it. Um, But the idea there was to increase the uh, allowable building density around uh, high-quality transportation options uh, in, in communities across the state. And it met with a huge amount of pushback from uh, local control advocates in city halls around the state uh, who felt like it was a massive uh, cribbing of their own power and 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 jumping into the, uh, what it is that they feel is their their domain and where they have the most control because that's very much what is going on because it's a fucking racket. Um, but it was also met with a lot of pushback from housing equity groups, including groups who are you know arguing against displacement, against uh, fighting, trying to to do their best to stop gentrification from expanding into their neighborhoods, and who rightly pointed out that a lot of these public transportation uh, like the the these hotspots that were deemed to be transit rich uh, were going to be disproportionately impacting uh, poorer working class neighborhoods rather than the wealthy neighborhoods who have 100% not been pulling their weight when it comes to providing enough housing uh, to keep up with the growing population in the state. It's also an interesting thing to note that like when they put in the new housing or the new uh, transit in LA, they put it in a neighborhoods that were poor because it was cheaper to buy the land there and they got less community yeah. pushback. Like it's taking them forever works. to negotiate this purple line station with Beverly Hills. The expo line development went pretty quick because there was nobody there to fight them. It's funny how that works when the community that you're trying to target for this development um, is struggling day to day to try to just keep the uh, the lights on and the roof over their heads and is struggling paycheck to paycheck and is on the verge of getting evicted at any given moment if they were, you know, they're three months away from being homeless on the streets, they, oddly enough, don't have time to go to City Hall and argue for, you know, protections in their communities. Or let alone hire a lawyer to sue the city and sue Metro and sue the rest of them. Like, you know, I I want to caveat my last statement about the Expo line by saying the people of Cheviot Hills, because they hate bike lanes, kept a bike bike path closed for six months because of a bullshit argument about noise and possible crime and uh, their quality of life. And like literally you had a fully finished bike lane that was just surrounded by a chain link fence. When you get to like the wealthiest neighborhood at the end of the expo line there that like the city just couldn't open because a bunch of rich asshole homeowners were suing them over a fucking bike path yeah so this this happens um anyway so not not diving more into the equity arguments against all of this and how fucked the system is from the ground up but we uh, never get through basically it. yeah i know we we would just be here for hours and hours and this is already going to be a long podcast as it is um, but basically last year, uh, Wiener came back and now this time it's been rebranded as Senate bill 50. And, uh, it was eventually turned into a two year bill because Senator Portantino, uh, held it back during the appropriations committee, which is known to be the, uh, the, the committee that kills, uh, it's, it's what is it? It's, it's where, where good bills go to die is, uh, the appropriations committee in either house, honestly. Um, but one of the things that was introduced 
in the amendments last year was this five-year delay for sensitive communities, um, a huge scale down in terms of the height limits that were originally proposed in SB 827. And again, those are not height limits of like mandating a minimum height, but they were mandating that the local municipalities would not be able to restrict heights to be lower than certain amounts, which would then enable, you know, like, oh my God, six or eight story developments across the street from a metro station. Like, oh no, woe is me. We might actually look like a real city. Um, and then also had this really bizarre carve out last year that came um, just before the May massacre of all the housing bills uh, relating to a, 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 a size of county, a, a completely seemingly arbitrary delineation in size uh, that would mean that places like Marin uh, Marin County up north and, and um, Sonoma County as well, uh, places that are notorious for being uh, anti-actual like housing development and anti-poor people in general. Uh, so any county under the population of 600,000 would be largely immune to any of the proposals coming out of SB 50. Um, uh, the amendments that were introduced this year, however, are almost entirely meant to bring about uh, you know, to bring on board the, the strong advocates for local control. Um, so these new plans, the, the cities would be needing to ensure that they're not pushing the development into sprawl, which is a, a, a good, a good change relative to, you know, just open ending it for what these cities are allowed to do in terms of their development. Um, it would give them the, you know, two years to come up with their own plan of how they want to do it. As long as it is that they're, they're not increasing the total number of vehicle miles traveled, which is the new statistic that's being used to, uh, inform like CEQA rules when it comes to, uh, what, what it is that's making, um, or rather how, how the city and state and, uh, county governments are weighing the environmental impact of proposed changes. It's vehicle miles traveled is now the new standard used to determine uh, air pollution impacts and traffic impacts rather than just like uh, time that people spend idling in cars, which was, uh, I believe, the old one. And part of why we have all of these really shitty uh, lack of signal priority given to um, at grade transit like the Expo line. Um, new amendments that were proposed this year would also uh, prioritize uh, local community members being able to get first dibs on any affordable housing that is actually built in their communities uh, using provisions in this new bill. Of course, some of the concerns that were brought about with this, and, and uh, just really quickly jumping back, um, the, the main thing here is that the local communities will be given the two years to develop their own plans, and as long as they include enough zoning to uh, meet or beat the requirements that would you know be imposed upon them in terms of possible zoned density through SB 50, then their plan would be acceptable. Um, one of the things here that people are having concerns with from just from a purely uh, bureaucratic argument here is that this is ex largely duplicative of existing uh, regional housing needs assessment work and housing element work that you know already has this onerous process that's put on communities to uh, increase the the amount of zoning that they have in their spaces for new construction. Um, one of the things that we've discussed previously and everybody loves to bring up is like RENA, the Regional Housing Needs, Asso uh, 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 needs Assessment, rather, um, came up with this, these, these absolutely bullshit numbers for a lot of communities, specifically places like, oh, I don't know, Beverly Hills, where huh. their, their RENA requirement was to build like three units of new affordable housing um, because that system was fundamentally broken. Um, I believe it was SB 828 
uh, put in a bunch of changes into how that is, uh, how those needs are calculated moving forward. So uh, communities like Beverly Hills are, I believe, now going to be facing demands for like 3,000 units uh, under the the revamped rules, which is good. Um, but it's, you know, we still... The one of the other things that gets brought up when it comes to any of these kinds of measures is like this is just a zoning change. Like this doesn't actually build housing; it yep. just clears the way for housing to be built at some point in the future. And, and it also makes big... those single-family homes just way more expensive. Like now, that oh, house that could be four different houses is going to cost a lot more money when you're selling it to a developer. It just increases the value of those properties overall without ensuring that they're actually going to be turned into that housing or affordable housing. Yeah, and actually one of the really fun things here is that the current provisions under SB50 actually mandate that you cannot tear down an existing single-family home and replace it with a fourplex. It just now opens up the zoning for that to happen at some point in the future. So So how the fuck are you going to build a fourplex? Like, are you going to put it on stilts? I'm so confused. Uh, we've actually got a, a lovely quote here from uh, Scott Weiner that we're going to pull from that same uh, interview that answers that question for you. And then uh, you're going to be outraged. Here it is. It's a balance. Right. So we like, for example, on the multi on the other part of the bill where we uh, have strict demolition uh, prohibitions, if a renter has lived in the building in the last seven years or if there's been an Ellis Act eviction in the last 15 years. And we put those in there because we don't want this bill to become an engine for evicting, clearing out buildings to tear them down to build bigger buildings. We want to protect renters where they are. And some have said, well, you could build a lot more housing if you didn't have those demolition restrictions in. Or if you said it only has to be vacant for you know six months or a year. And, and that is true. But we're striking a balance because we don't want to be you know getting rid of tenants and evicting people and causing that kind of dislocation. Um, with the single family homes, uh, one of the you know we we're not we're, we're not doing this so that we can have someone like buy up all the homes in a neighborhood and just bulldoze everything to build fourplexes. Um, p- people can love that or hate that, but we're we're trying to strike a balance. And so, um, if it's a vacant lot and there are plenty of vacant lots in California to build housing, you can just straight up just build a fourplex. God damn it, Chris! That didn't make me happy. That did not spark joy. Throw it out. <laughs> Scott Weiner, I got news for you, buddy. You're canceled. Um, yeah, when when you propose that, you know, there are plenty of vacant lots in California for building new housing, where the fuck are you looking for those vacant lots? You can drive around the city of L.A. right now through our massive expanses of just suburban sprawl that counts as like our, it's actually fairly dense when it all comes down to it relative to other cities uh, overall. But like we're talking just single family homes as far as the eye can see and you can't tear any of them down. I know about a couple hundred acres of like seemingly unused grassland over on Wilshire. Like we can slap up some, some fourplexes there, right? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, no, this doesn't actually include any uh, upzoning of golf courses, um, but it would be nice. Uh, yeah, so what's, what's fun here, g- getting, getting back to the duplicative process when it comes to the zoning and the fact that you know, we don't have the, all these open properties, um, Lee and Dillon uh, from the LA Times and Matt Levin from CalMatters uh, were asking Wiener in this interview, how this process was not duplicative uh, of those efforts from the RENA and the housing element. Uh, and he's just 
basically brushed it off and said that it wasn't duplicative, but that instead it was going to be requiring cities to zone for more housing and not sprawl. And that actually would make it easier for them to uh, meet and exceed their requirements under arena and the housing element and all of that. So it's, it, he didn't say it wasn't going to be duplicative. I mean, he said it wasn't going to be duplicative. He didn't say how, um, and then just basically said it was going to make it easier to do those things. So we're talking like a massive amount of extra work for these uh, cities to go through um, or just get, slammed with a hammer from SB50. Um, so th other arguments that come out in terms of concerns about this is the fact that it's going to be, you know, two years uh, potentially if a city decides to like uh, take their own path on this. They get two whole years uh, of doing really nothing other than, you know, studying what they're going to do and proposing these solutions. And it might not even be accepted. So it might just go back to what it would have been under SB50. So that's well, just that an extra two year delay for nothing. And that's also like two years at a minimum because like once their plan oh, gets yeah. rejected, they're going to take the state to court and that's going to be five oh, years to get are. it worked out. So we're looking at probably a decade. And I know that a lot of cities out there are going to turn in what they know to be deficient plans and just know that they can keep delaying for years and years and years and years. Yeah, that's because you and I have a very cynical understanding of how these governments work and uh, we're right. No, so, I just grew uh, up in the 1%. <laughs> like I know how these fuckers think. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, also, one of the main concerns that was brought up, and we just kind of touched on it here, is that zoning does not mean housing actually gets built. Increasing the zoned density for a lot doesn't mean that you're going to actually put a fucking fourplex on it because there's still already a single family home there. And it's not like you can just go in and take a, you know, a two bedroom, two bath home and be like, it's a duplex now. You've got to do a lot of work to it. So uh, this, this is... It doesn't build housing. It just authorizes, you know, further, uh, you know, greed and uh, accumulation of property and capital by developers because there's really like the the tenant protections here are are paltry at best. Uh, there's such a small like you can't argue that he's meaningfully protecting renters because he doesn't actually include the rental registry that would be necessary to have any efficacy of enforcement uh, for the rules in this. Uh, it's just going to turn into a complete clusterfuck and vulture landlords are going to hop in and do their thing and it's going to be real, real bad for communities of color and working class folks up and down the entire state. Um, well, it, also, so, it also brings to, to mind the question of like, is this going to build real mixed income neighborhoods or is this just going to further ghettoize stuff? Because you can still build an upzone luxury building. You can just pay for affordable housing elsewhere. And we've discussed this before, but yes. I don't think a lot of luxury developers who are going to be building in neighborhoods like Westwood or Santa Monica or Culver City are going to want to slap up a, an affordable building in that neighborhood or even include affordable units in there when they know that they can just build out in like South LA or something and build a substandard affordable building or pay someone else to build a substandard affordable yeah, building. Like the, fund. the, the developers aren't even required to make yeah. sure those units come online. They just have to pay towards them being built at some point in the future. They get the, the, uh, the waivers as soon as they prove that they're going to do the thing that might one day result in affordable housing, not actually creating affordable housing. <sighs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's just a giant mess. And this, that, that argument actually immediately brings to mind that whole kerfuffle from New York about uh, they made a, a poor door in one of these buildings that was built in New York City where there was a separate elevator that went to the floors where the affordable housing was and a separate entrance to get access to that elevator. So you're literally like creating a class division of separate 
uh, not even close to equal, but just separate spaces for people to access the same fucking building because uh, the poors were not allowed to access the rest of the amenities and space that the rich people that lived in the same building as them. Uh, or there was the, that story out of Seattle where a guy won a lottery uh, to have an affordable unit, like to have a rent-subsidized unit in a luxury building. It was part of the deal that the developers struck with the city to allow them to build this luxury building. And then he had the cops called on him and was tased and arrested because he left his key in his unit and locked himself out. And when he asked security to let oh, him back God. into his unit, they did not believe that he lived in the building and called the police who then assaulted him like even Wait, if you're using the same entrance but you're one of the affordable renters in the building you're not treated as though you actually belong there Ugh, yeah that's that's just disgusting um yeah so getting back to sb50 in all of this bleak discussion uh, Wiener was also claiming earlier this month that his team was very close to reaching an agreement with housing equity groups that were uh, mainly hung up on, on inclusionary zoning requirements and, and some other factors. He believes that the four demands that came from like his meetings, uh, I believe it was last year or in between 827 and, and SB50, um, he came to LA, met with ACT LA and a number of other groups. And the main concern that he took away from that was that these groups were concerned with anti-demolition tenant protections related to Ellis and other evictions. And uh, that, that ties right into, you know, he included a, a requirement that like it's, it's, you can't have had an Ellis Act eviction within the last like seven years and you can't have had any other evictions in the last five years as a way of really trying to, to clamp down on that. But again, unless we have an actual statewide tenant registry uh, or, or, you know, apartment registry, there's really no way of actually enforcing that shit. Um, because the, you know, HCID and, uh, the other groups that are supposed to be, uh, policing all of this are already overwhelmed and unable to stop illegal evictions as it is. So nothing will actually meaningfully be changed. It'll just, uh, now when, if you, if a landlord takes that gamble and does that illegal eviction, they can suddenly get a hell of a lot more payout because, Tenants don't know about these protections. The level of tenant education when it comes to their rights and the access to their, the tools that they have available to them is extremely limited. And even the ones, like the, the, the tenants who do know about it are already run up against a bandwidth issue of the resources that are available to them while promises are good. Like the reality is that those, those resources are already over, overburdened and stretched beyond their capacity. And so the landlords are the ones that, that walk away making all the profit for very little risk. Um, another issue that was brought up by these housing equity advocates was uh, that limiting the SB 827 to just transit-rich areas uh, was extremely detrimental to working-class neighborhoods. And that's why we saw the high-opportunity and job-rich inclusions in SB 50 in the first round of amendments last year. Uh, they also brought up the need for that delayed imp implementation in low low-income communities that are they're dubbed quote-unquote sensitive communities in the bill. That's where they got the five-year planning period for them. And the final hang-up here is the inclusionary zoning requirement. Um, that's what we're talking about whenever we're saying that they need to be including affordable housing here. And that's where our beef in terms of being able to pay into a linkage fee instead of actually including the affordable housing in the project is where the real issue is. SB 50 would require something between 15 and 25% of the housing that you're including in a project be low income 
but that really like only starts to trigger when you're putting in like big, uh, big developments, like the lowest size, uh, at, you know, 10 units is where you, I believe you get that, that you start getting the 15% above 10 units. You start getting a 15% requirement. Um, but the 25% doesn't kick in for quite some time. And most of what would be, uh, permitted under the, the, uh, rules in SB 50 is going to be those kinds of fourplexes. And if none of those are going to be affordable, none of those are going to be subject to any kind of, uh, rent protections because of cost of Hawkins, uh, it's like, it's just going to be a giant mess. Um, but this story on SB 50 and the proposals of it have been picked up by media publications around the country. Uh, they were picked up in the New York times last time around. And I think on eight twenty seven as well. Um, and specifically the Atlantic, which is one of our absolute favorite publications, um, picked up coverage of SB 50 this time around. And, uh, this is from an article written by Annie Lowry, who is a staff writer over at The Atlantic. Uh, and she's saying, quote, SB 50 would override local restrictions on building, letting developers create more housing and denser housing near train stations and high-frequency bus stops. Homeowners would be able to build accessory dwelling units or casitas. Companies would be able to build small apartment complexes. The bill stalled in California legislature last year, but earlier this year, or earlier this month, State Senator Scott Weiner announced changes that would give localities more flexibility in implementing the law, provided they allow as much as cons- as much construction as SB 50 itself would allow, and would ensure that low-income residents get access to the new housing. Um, she's missing some facts here. Uh, frankly, everything relating to the accessory dwelling units in the casitas uh, was pushed into law last year and doesn't have a goddamn thing to do with SB 50 right off the bat. Uh, this doesn't only focus on train stations and high-frequency bus stops. In fact, that was one of the big changes between uh, SB 827 and SB 50, um, so she missed that one. Uh, and it's, you know, these these companies being able to build small apartment complexes, yeah, that's like the whole thing. Um, but it's just missing the point here, but everybody and their mother is getting all excited about the prospects of, oh my God, it's a giant cash grab for what we can do in California if this bill passes, which is totally unsurprising because when you look at the people who are making the donations to fund Scott Wiener's election campaigns, it's a lot of money coming from real estate developers. In the last two cycles, he has taken more money than any other member of the uh, California government at any level of the state. He is far and away the darling of developer contributions. Thank you, Jacob Wucher, for crunching the numbers on that one for Knock. Hell yeah, and we're going to put a link to that as well. Um, Yeah, so in short, this is a bill that is purporting to help low-income communities Uh, but it's not going to. And for that reason, there is actually an open letter that is coming out um, talking about, it's it's titled California Tenant Groups Oppose SB 50. And so this is uh, being put out by a number of groups list a couple of them right here for you real quick. Uh, Housing Rights Community Committee of San Francisco, uh, San Francisco Tenants Union, uh, Dolores Street Community Services San Francisco, the, housing, the Affordable Housing Alliance, uh, South Market Community Action Network, uh, Berkeley Tenants Union, uh, Chinatown Community for Equity Development here in LA, CCED, we love them, San Diego Tenants Union, uh, People Organized for Westside Renewal, Power, our sister organization. Uh, Los Angeles Tenants Union is also hopping on board. Uh, their locals, they actually list a bunch of the locals that specifically signed on. Uh, Sacramento Tenants Union, uh, Santa Cruz Tenants Association. Like All of these groups have signed on to 
fight against SB50 because, frankly, Scott Wiener is lying through his fucking teeth when he says that he has buy-in from the community saying that this is actually going to help. So let's read a couple of quick uh, excerpts from this open letter, uh, which we'll hopefully be posting a link to when it's fully published uh, in the description here. If not, you'll see it coming out soon. So, quote, on behalf of Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco and the below-signed organizations, we are writing to firmly oppose SB 50 Wiener. SB 50, even in, even in its third iteration, signals more rent hikes, gentrification, and displacement in marginalized communities and beyond, incentivizing more speculation when global capital entities are devouring our housing stock at unprecedented rates will worsen an already devastating affordability crisis. Wall Street and hedge fund landlords are leaving thousands of units empty and turning homes for people into to mere mechanisms for profit, which has pushed an increasing number of tenants into homelessness. The lack of truly affordable homes or substantive enforceable tenant protections in SB 50 leaves too many vulnerable to the whims of the real estate market, which has undermined community stability for generations. As a quick little side note, this writing is so much fucking better than the stuff that was coming out of the Atlantic, but I digress. Yeah, I know. Quote, we believe it is crucial for exclusionary communities that benefit from the redlining of poor people and communities of color to contribute towards increasing the affordable housing supply in California. Our objections are rooted in SB 50's impact on communities of color and low moderate income communities or low income low, moderate income neighborhoods near transit, which will face higher rates of gentrification, displacement, and rising income inequality as a result of the bill. Wiener's amendments claiming to give sensitive communities five years and cities two years to make alternative plans to SB 50 zoning regulation, deregulation rather, which advances a majority of market rate units are disingenuous if not accompanied by additional state funds to build a majority of deeply affordable units to suit the true housing needs of these areas. And this really ties in with the the studies that we've seen time and time again in Los Angeles, where they have shown we have a preponderance, we have an overabundance of market rate and above market rate housing in this city. If you are looking to find a luxury place to live in the city of LA or in the city of San Francisco, you have no problem doing so. There are lots of empty units waiting for you to move in. They're offering all kinds of discounts trying to get you to move in. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about a one-bedroom apartment for $3,000 a month in downtown LA, that shit's not affordable for almost anyone. And when we're talking about what kind of housing that we actually need to be building, if we're going to be giving anyone incentives to build a whole bunch of new housing, it cannot be market-rate housing. Building market-rate housing is not the problem. It is not the solution either. Like, you you cannot do what the fucking Yimbies do and say, oh, we're just going to build our way out of this. It's going to be fucking trickle down theory because that worked so well in the rest of the economy. It's going to work great in housing, too. It's just so moronic and short sighted. There's no fucking way that this stuff is going to work. And I'm getting very angry. Let me close this uh, section on SB 50 out with the final paragraph in this letter. Um, quote. It is unfortunate that, for the third time, Senator Weiner has failed to meet with tenant rights groups in his district or beyond who understand the pressures that low-income communities are facing and the types of housing and protections they need. A bill that encourages the building of mostly market-rate units, especially in cities that are already meeting their luxury housing goals while underbuilding for all other income levels, cannot be called an equity bill, an affordability bill, and a climate bill, as its author touts. The rise in displacement 
supercommuting, and homelessness will continue unless our housing solutions tackle inequality, implement real rent control, and develop deeply affordable housing for those who can't wait for market rate housing to trickle down. If the state wishes to address the housing emergency, we request that they revisit, reinvest in social and public housing and let cities expand renter protections by eliminating the Ellis Act and Costa Hawkins. If the legislature wishes to address restrictive zoning laws, it should consider measures like AB 1279, which has a much more targeted approach without the high cost to low-income tenants and gentrifying neighborhoods. We look forward to reviewing future proposals that truly address the needs for equitable and sustainable affordable housing and real renter protections. Drop the mic, and we're done. Yep. <laughs> no, I think that, I think you, that was uh, very much a good one. Um, yeah, I, I think that last paragraph kind of sums it up in a way that we really... It really does. Like, I really can't top that. But I think this is like a good way to sort of like wrap this all together, that what we've got happening on the ground level in the streets of LA is playing itself out as part of the same structural problem that's leading to like the ocean park development that's never going to be finished and saw the city of Los Angeles flush a whole bunch of tax dollars into development that would have only catered to the wealthy. That the people who are profiting off of the housing crisis are the same ones who are calling out the police who are literally murdering people in the street. That we can't separate what's happening in a city like Oakland from what's happening in the streets of LA. That even though these cities are hundreds of miles apart, the same structural forces are causing these problems because we're all at the whims of this globalized, financialized real estate economy that is looking for a small return on investment at the cost of human lives. <sighs> yeah. All right. All right. So well, let's uh, let's talk about uh, things you can do this next week where you can uh, actually make a difference in the city of L.A. rather than uh, doing what Chris and I are doing, which is driving ourselves <laughs> towards an early grave by just <laughs> yelling at things. So the first thing I want to uh, put on y'all's radar is on January 29th, the Nithya Raman campaign is holding a fundraiser called Comedy for the City. It's going to be at the El Rey. You can pick up tickets at nithyaforthecity.com backslash El Rey, and it's just one word, El Rey, no hyphens or spaces or anything. But the lineup is really, really cool. Uh, it's going to start at 7 p.m., and it's featuring the comedy stylings of Karen Kilgraff, Reggie Watts, Kristen Shaw, so shout out to the Louise Belcher fans in the audience, Margaret Cho, Paul F. Tompkins, Ike Barinholtz, James Adomian, not sure if he's going as, as Bernie this time, but also uh, he, <laughs> he unblocked me on Twitter at some point, so thanks, James. Uh, Dave Anthony, <laughs> Guy Branham, and other special guests. It's going Hell to be hosted yeah. by Mitra Jahari and Joel Kim Booster, who Joel Kim Booster just has like the best activist name in the city because it's just built yeah, into does. his name. But again, pick up tickets, help fund this amazing campaign. We are totally going to fix City Hall if we can get people like Nithia yes. into the halls of power. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to do everything I can to show up to that because that sounds like a hell of a good time. Uh, another thing that's going to be coming up, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, the point in time count is still looking for volunteers. Uh, go to www.theycountwillyou.org and you can sign up there to be a part of the Los Angeles Homeless, Homelessness Services Authority's point in time count for 2020. So January 21st is when they're going to be doing the count in San Gabriel in the San Fernando Valleys. The 22nd is when West L.A., Southeast L.A., and the South Bay are all going to be tackled. Uh, January 23rd is the scheduled date for the Antelope Valley, Metro Los Angeles, and South Los Angeles counts. Um, I know that a number of folks from K-Town for All have signed up to help with that uh, Metro Los Angeles count on the 23rd. Uh, hope to see more of y'all out there. Uh, I'm going to be signing up as well, and uh, it should be a good time of like actually you know 
getting out there and doing the work that technically Lhasa should be paid to do uh, and paying people to do because we the city needs to reprioritize how all its funding works. But again, we digress. Um, once again, BLM will be holding their weekly vigil on Wednesday downtown at 211 West Temple as usual. Vigil starts at 4, runs until 6. LATU, LATU, Los Angeles Tenants Union, how many ways you want to say it, uh, will again be having meetings this week as always. They've got uh, their local for the uh, Northeast happening on the 22nd. Uh, the North Hollywood local happening on the 23rd, the East side local also happening the same day, as well as the South LA local. Uh, those all happen on Thursday, the 23rd. And of course we've got the weekly ground game meeting happening on Thursday, as always at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, uh, two blocks from the Western and Hollywood Metro station. Uh, come join us. And we may finally determine whether or not the Roomba works. Uh, yeah, indeed. It's I, I didn't actually uh, get a, a final result on that one. Uh, and then you can always check with Ground Game Los Angeles and our allies for canvases for Dr. Lorraine Lundquist, who's running in CD12, for Nithya Raman, who's running in CD4, for Ara Vasquez, who's running in CD10, for Dan Brotman, who's running for Glendale City Council, and then across the county of LA for Measure R, which will stop the county from spending money on building jails and instead spend that money investing yeah. in our communities and our infrastructure. Measure R is a really important one. It's going to be on the March ballot. We really need it to pass. And don't forget, the deadline to register to vote in the state of California is February 15th. If you miss that date or you can't register to vote by that date, you can show up at a voting center between February 22nd and March 3rd and uh, register to vote on the spot and then vote conditionally, which is a little bit like voting provisionally, but your vote will still be counted. So make sure you get out there, make sure you're registered, make sure your friends are registered. As much as Chris objects, you know, I'm still going to say like getting your friend in a car and getting him to register to vote, really, really good thing. Maybe you lure him in there with candy, maybe you lure him in there with a joint. I don't really care how you voluntarily get them in the car, but you, you then take them to get registered. You can also register no online at lavotes.net, or you can head to the Secretary of State's website to get registered. Again, March 3rd, uh, mail-in ballots are going out very shortly in February, so also keep an eye out for the NOC Voter Guide, because we're going to have that drop around the same time that mail-in ballots go out. Hell yeah, we'll have a lot of good suggestions and analysis it's going to be a really important ballot and then don't forget folks we get to do it all again in november Woohoo! it's 2020 baby and that's exactly what this year is all about is voting 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 <sighs> so <clears throat> as always if y'all have any events that you want us to be taking part in, publicizing, or just being made aware of, please send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or by email over at podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, over on Instagram at Ground Game LA, and you can like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live stream content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. Knock.LA is a cooperative, nonprofit multimedia collaboration, and we invite you to be a part of it. Please support our work over on Patreon. We pay local writers to report on issues happening in, the neighborhoods, happening in their neighborhoods and around LA, so your support goes directly to funding the work of shining a light into spaces that establishment figures want to keep shrouded from view. We also invite you to contribute your own work over on Knock.LA. We are all in this together, and your voice really does matter. If you'd like to read the stories that we're citing here or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description over on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. 
Thank you very much for listening. I know this has been a long one. Thank you for hanging in there. Uh, I think it was pretty good content. <laughs> no, I think, I think it worked well. And I think I want to leave us all on a little guided visualization. Just kind of imagine waking up one morning in your nice modern fourplex that has sustainable energy and it's got energy efficient design and you're just a short walk from transit. So you don't have to wake up super early to catch a bus or anything. You can you can wake up at a reasonable time before work and have yeah. your coffee, make yourself some breakfast, play with your animals. And then you step out and you have to walk down the long flight of stairs because you live on a floating piece of land because there are no fucking empty lots in LA to build your fourplex. Anyways, thank you all very much for listening. Have yourselves a great week and we'll catch you next week. Oh, thanks y'all. Have a great one.